I guess it is that time, and I guess it is 7 o'clock. Um, hi, everybody. <laughs> it's a thin crowd tonight, I think, a little, bit, a little, little short, but um, it's good to see you all. It's my last time. Last time. That's like for good, for good. Um, no, I, I have really enjoyed uh, being able to teach and preach on Sunday mornings and um, Wednesday nights, but uh, you won't see... You know, you'll see me more. I mean, I'll still be here for church and everything, but I've had a really good time um, this summer. Uh, so thank you for all your support and uh, listening and your feedback and uh, your love, and it has just been uh, very, very great. A g- great blessing. But we have a lot to go over tonight, so I'm not going to delay anymore. Um, if you remember, we've been going over four of the songs of trust together on Wednesday nights, and these psalms, they are inspired prayers and songs given to us by God. They are great examples for us and how we can better approach God in our prayer and honestly just how we can think about God in general. They are songs of trust. They help us see how and why we can trust God and what that looks like in our lives. And so far we have gone over three amazing psalms, Psalm 11, Psalm 23, and Psalm 46. And we have learned a lot about why we can trust God and then how we can better trust God each day. And like in Psalm 11, we focused on beholding where God is, what he has done, who he is, to deepen our trust. In Psalm 23, we discussed about the trustworthy character of God as our shepherd, one who will provide for us, protect us, and has promised us eternal life with him. And then last time in Psalm 46, we learned that God is our refuge. He is our strength, a very present help in times of trouble. And that no matter what the situation, we need to do two things. We need to come and behold him in all his works, and we need to be still and know that he is God. Doing this will remind us of his comforting presence and the closeness of who he is to our refuge, um, as, a, as our refuge, as our strength, and as our help. So, these have been very heavy. These psalms have been very heavy on trust God, trust God, trust God. This is who he is. This is what he's done. Like, why wouldn't you trust him? He's God. And when you are in distress, when no matter what the situation is, you can trust God. And I mean, what else would you expect from songs of trust? I would think they're very appropriately named as such. However, tonight's song of trust has a different nuance, and we're going to be looking at Psalm 63, which is a beautiful psalm, my favorite psalm personally. And by the way, I consider it like cruel and unusual punishment to only a lot, like 20, 20, 25 minutes uh, to teach on this psalm, but we are here, and this is what we're going to do. We're going to try our best. Uh, but Psalm 63 is, is different than the other songs of trust that we have looked at. And just in reading it, you might not be able to see quite as easily how it is even a song of trust. But if we look at the context of the passage, David is in distress. A lot of our Bibles have a psalm of David when he was in the wilderness of Judah. So he's in that wilderness, most likely running from Absalom, who is seeking to kill him. We see in verse 11 that David refers to himself as the king, so this makes sense. He's not running from Saul, but also he is the king and he is hiding in the wilderness. He's no longer in the comfort of his kingdom. He's no longer in the presence of his people, and he's no longer able to go into the presence of God in the temple. So David, out of his undying trust in God, writes this psalm of a more specific personal devotion to God when he is totally deprived of every comfort, every provision, and the corporate worship of God in his temple, David makes a stand to personally devote himself to God as the one who is his supreme satisfaction. 
This is what we are learning and looking at today. Um, that phrase, personally devoting ourselves to God as the one who is our supreme satisfaction. So we're looking at Psalm 63, and the outline of today's passage is a little different. We're going to go from the beginning to the end, and then slide back into the middle, um, because I think that in the middle section is where most of our application is going to be. And so we will have the character of the Christian in verse 1, and then we'll jump to the satisfaction of the Christian in verses 5 through 11, and then we'll end with a few points of application in verses 1 through 7, which I'm calling the stages of personal devotion. So we have character of the Christian, satisfaction of the Christian, then in the middle, stages of personal devotion. So if you would, I would ask that you would join me in the privilege of opening and reading God's word together in Psalm 63. Psalm 63. The psalmist David here writes, O God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you. As in a dry and weary land where there is no water. So I have looked upon you in the sanctuary, beholding your power and glory, because your steadfast love is better than life, my lips will praise you. So I will bless you, as long as I live, in your name I will lift up my hands. My soul will be satisfied, as with fat and rich food, and my mouth will praise you with joyful lips, when I remember you upon my bed and meditate on you in the watches of the night." For you have been my help, and in the shadow of your wings I will sing for joy. My soul clings to you, your right hand upholds me. But those who seek to destroy my life shall go down into the depths of the earth. They shall be given over to the power of the sword. They shall be a portion for jackals. But the king shall rejoice in God, all who swear by him shall exalt, for the mouths of the liars will be stopped." May God bless the reading of his holy, inspired, and inerrant word. Would you pray with me? Father in heaven, we thank you uh, for tonight and that we are able to gather together as your people, as a church, and to look at your word together to study a psalm of personal devotion out of a trust in you. And God, I just pray that each and every one of us here tonight upon uh, hearing the message would leave here and... Go and be personally devoted to you each day and would fall into deep, deep trust in you to do so. Father, we love you and we thank you. I pray that you would help us to see wondrous things from your law, that you would satisfy us with rich food from your word tonight. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. David speaks of the character of the Christian first in verse 1. Character of the Christian. Those who have been placed by God within the family of God, those who can rightly say, Oh God, you are my God. That is a Christian. What a beautiful statement that is, by the way. Oh God, you are my God. The infinite, transcendent, covenant-making, promise-keeping, holy creator, majesty, shepherd, alpha, omega. He is my God. What a powerful statement of faith. It is the foundation of this passage and it is the foundation of the believer's life and most certainly the foundation of the believer's personal devotion to God. Amidst terrible circumstances, David says this. He declares, O God, you are my God. He humbles himself underneath the authority of his creator and he recognizes that God is the only person he can go to for help, that he can go to for comfort, for whatever it is. It is God who he's personally devoted to. Why? Because God is his God, the one who redeems his life from the pit 
the one who throws his sins behind his back, where, where else would he go but to the Lord? Calvin says here, apt as we are when assaulted by the very slightest trials to lose the comfort of any knowledge of God we may previously have possessed, it is necessary that we should notice this and learn by David's example to struggle to maintain our confidence under the worst troubles that can befall us. He does more than simply pray here. He sets the Lord before him as his God that he may throw all his cares unhesitatingly upon him, deserted as he was of man and a poor outcast in the waste and howling wilderness. His faith, shown in this persuasion of the favor and help of God, had the effect of exciting him to constant and vehement prayer for the grace which he expected. Do we wake up each morning and in each and every moment of the day and say, Oh God, you are my God. You are God, I am not. No matter what may come, I trust in you today. I put my cares on you today. I trust in your character. I rest in your promises. I am devoted to you today. What a beautiful statement. But David continues with three more phrases of devotion. He says, earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you, as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. To understand these phrases and what David is saying, let's remind ourselves of where David is. He is quite literally in a dry and weary land where there is no water. He's in the middle of nowhere in the wilderness of Judah. No water in sight, no food in sight, no nothing. No protection from Absalom, if Absalom finds him, he's going to kill him. He is seemingly abandoned. And in places and situations as desolate as the one that David is in, spiritual health usually goes down. Not only is he physically miserable and emotionally hurt as his own son is trying to kill him, but he is spiritually cut off, so to speak, from the literal presence of God to be able to worship in the temple, from the means of grace that are there, his ability to participate in corporate worship and to hear and read scripture. But for David, a spiritual decline does not happen. No, his devotion intensifies through his prayer. Though he cannot see the physical temple and gaze upon the presence of God, in trust, he fully devotes himself to God. He earnestly seeks God. His soul thirsts for God. His flesh faints for God. Full devotion. And why? Yes, because God is his God, as we discussed just recently. But specifically, why? The answer is, David sees God as his supreme satisfaction. So look at the three three phrases closely. We'll see this. Earnestly I seek, my soul thirsts, my flesh faints. And you see what David is doing here? He's, He's drawing on the physical reality of his own destitution. He has no food. He has no drink. He has no personal comfort or even safety from his enemies in and of himself. And then he is saying that God alone himself is the one who truly satisfies his desires. My soul thirsts like my body thirsts now. My flesh faints or hungers as my body does now, not for drink, not for food, but for you alone, God. When you thirst and you hunger for something, you're saying that whatever that thing is will satisfy that. When I am thirsty for water, I know that the water will quench the thirst. And David is saying that his soul thirsts and his body hungers for this thing, for this thing. He being, his, he's earnestly seeking after God for something that he knows will satisfy it. And it's God alone. It's his God. It's the one who is his ultimate and supreme satisfaction. 
while his body is literally deprived of food and drink, and he himself is deprived of the comforts and safeties of the normal life as king, David directs all of those desires, all of his desires, onto the all-desirable and supremely satisfying God himself. David perfectly reflects what the son of David would instruct us to do in Matthew 6.33, but seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added unto you. He understood that no matter his physical needs, he needed to desire God above all, to seek him and his righteousness first. This is the character of the Christian as one who can say, God, you are my God. We are to seek him, thirst for him, earnestly hunger for him with our whole body and spirit, desire him as our supreme satisfaction, for he alone satisfies. And moving on to our second point, the satisfaction of the Christian You'll see why I'm jumping here now, hopefully. I want you to see the connection, the immediate satisfaction that God gives David. David does not just earnestly seek God as a satisfaction and that's it, but he is satisfied. He is satisfied. God satisfies our longings for him. He does not just let us seek and thirst and hunger without being satisfied. No, Matthew 7, 7 through 8 tells us, Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks, receive. And the one who seeks, finds. And the one who knocks, it will be opened. And then in the Beatitudes, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be satisfied. So let this be an encouragement to you, that if you seek him, and if you seek him with your whole heart, you will find him. If you seek the satisfaction he gives in him, he will give it to you. And we see specifically David talks about his soul. And he says that the condition of his thirsting soul after God satisfies it, it's, it is satisfied in verse 5, and it clings to God in verse 8. It's satisfied and it clings to God. So in verse 5, David's soul is satisfied. He says, my soul will be satisfied as with fat and rich food. So here he goes again. He's working with this analogy. As, and he says his soul thirsts after God, his soul thirsts for God, toward God, as the one who will quench it, and then God does. And notice it's not just like he gives him a morsel of satisfaction. No, he gives it in abundance, as with fat and rich food. And so here's the Christian life right here, that we would yearn for, search for, thirst for, hunger for, daily seek God as our only satisfaction, that we would put behind the things of the flesh, that we would stop thinking on them, that we would stop being so worried about indulging in them and, and being provided for and getting provision, and we would just turn to God and just feed off his word every day, that we would seek him and find him and savor him and be simply satisfied with him. It's so simple, but it's so glorious. So glorious. The second, David's soul clings to God in verse 8. He seeks, he's found, and he is never letting go. He doesn't want to. His soul is clinging to this life source for dear life. I don't want satisfaction anywhere else, and I will not get it anywhere else. I'm staying here. My soul clings to you, God, because I need you. And this clinging is something that followers of God imitators of God ought to be doing. It's something that we need to do. I think Numbers 14.24 shows this clinging well. Talking about Caleb. 
but my servant Caleb, because he has a different spirit and has followed me fully, I will bring him into the land. So the clinging of our souls to God is us having a different spirit and following him fully as his servants. It's sowing to the spirit, as Galatians 6 says. It's following God in every aspect of our lives. 1 Corinthians 10.31, whatever you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. That is true satisfaction. Following him fully, sowing to the spirit, and then obtaining eternal life. Doing all for his glory. And how is God most glorified? We've talked about this. Piper says, God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. So doing all to the glory of God involves being satisfied in him and understanding that he is our satisfaction. He is all we need. He's the beginning and end of all things. Nothing else and no one else satisfies more. So David's soul is satisfied and it clings and he's also, he says in, in verse uh, 8b, he says that he is upheld. And in the verses following, he says that he has a confidence in God. We are upheld, supported, strengthened by God. We learned this in the past three Psalms. God is our refuge. He's our shepherd. He provides, he protects, very present help. We are eternally supported, eternally held in the palm of his hand. My flesh may fail, my body goes under, but God still upholds me. I am devoted to him. I stay devoted to him. I hunger for him, thirst for him, because I know that he alone upholds me. He alone gives me this strength. David also gives this confidence that those who are trying to cause harm to him will once again fail. They, as those against God and his people and his king, will fail eternally. They will never prosper because God is just, and only those who seek him will find him. Those who go against him will fail. They will reap corruption for sowing to the flesh. So I ask you today, are you devoted to God? Are you thirsting, hungering, longing for him? Are you clinging to him, following him fully with your life? Do you have this confidence in him that he upholds you, and that he is the all-satisfying God? Are you like one of these enemies of David, like his son, who will never prosper and will fail eternally for sowing to the flesh and not seeking God? Long for him. Jesus says that we should abide in him. As he says in John 15, As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments. These things I have spoken to you, that you may be, that joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full. Ultimate satisfaction and joy by abiding in God, by seeking after him. What an invitation that is. And now we're sliding back to the middle. My goodness, it's not enough time. Um, <laughs> we're going back to the middle, and it's uh, our application, the stages of personal devotion, verses 1 through 7. And so it's really easy to say to seek after God, but how do we do it? And I'm not going to give you a systematic answer. It's all right here. I think that we have all that we need in these verses. I think David gives it to us. And there are at least five points that I saw a very easy practical application for your life of personal devotion to the Lord. I was going to just make this, the message, just these seven points, but I, I mean these five points, but I thought I would give um, more as well. So we're going to go through these quickly. Uh, first point, this kind of flows from verse one, is just to pray. As First as Thessalonians 5 says, pray without ceasing. Let the first place you go be on your knees. 
The passage itself is a prayer to God. David is in this awful situation. He's deprived of all of the necessities of life, from the temple, from corporate worship, from the word of God being read to him, and he resorts to the only other means of grace at his disposal in this prayer. David, in unbelievable faith and trust, sought God first and foremost in his prayer. We need to pray for, uh, we need to pray as it is a primary way of how we seek God and how we become satisfied in him and thus glorify him. Second point, so first one is pray, and second one is a, a specifying of the first. As soon as you wake up, and as many times as possible throughout your day, pray your personal devotion to God. That's from verse 1. The word earnestly here obviously means with much care and fervor and devotion. And that is how we seek God. But in some translations, the word is early, meaning that uh, it's something that we do as soon as our day begins. And when David is, is in his terrible distress and situation, he states, God, you are my God. Earnestly, I seek you. So I would make that point of application when we, when we wake up. We pray this. We pray our personal devotion this God-centered, God-seeking prayer. God, you are my God. Earnestly, I seek you. You cast all your cares at his feet. You look to him for everything that you're going to have to do for this day, for your strength, for your help, everything. So pray this personal devotion to him as soon as you wake up and as many times as you can throughout the day. Third point of application is fast. This I'm grabbing from verse 1 again, from the context of the passage as well. David understands the spiritual reality of his satisfaction in God much deeper, and he seeks it much more when he is in the thick of the physical reality of hunger and thirst. He understands physical hunger and thirst more, which helps him understand his spiritual hunger and thirst that need to be satisfied and quenched in God. And although David wasn't fasting, like at least deliberately, he is, this is exactly why we fast. John Piper says in his book, God is a gospel on this. He says, why did God create bread and design human beings to need it for life? He could have had created life that has no need of food. He is God after all. He could have done it any way he pleased. Why bread? Why hunger and thirst? My answer is very simple. He created bread so that we would have some idea of what the Son of God is like when he says, I am the bread of life. And he created the rhythm of thirst and satisfaction, like we see here in Psalm 63, so that we would have some idea of what faith in Christ is like when Jesus said, he who believes in me shall never thirst. And then he continues later on fasting. When we eat, we taste the emblem of our heavenly food, the bread of life. It's an emblem, our food is, of the bread of life given in Christ. And when we fast, we say, I love the reality above the emblem. So I would encourage us here tonight to fast and each time you feel hunger, pray and read the word of God. Do this to love the reality of our deeper satisfaction in God more than we love the emblem that is food and drink that is to point us to this satisfaction. So fast. Fourth point. Look at and behold in your heart the power, glory, and steadfast love of God. That's from verse 2 and 3. By, do this by in verse 6 remembering and meditating all the time, night and day. This is a kind of two points, but I'm combining it into one. So once again, David does not have the physical temple around him or the beautiful furniture or the temple of like the Ark of the, Coven- Ark of the Covenant, the presence of God sitting right in front of him. But he in faith and trust 
in his heart, ponders, meditates, delights in God. He knows God and his character so well that whenever he does not have all these things, he is still able to look at and behold God. And he sees his glory, his power, and steadfast love that is better than life itself. And for us, it's the same thing, but we have Jesus Christ to look to. He is the wisdom, the power of God, the very imprint of his nature, the very glory of God itself in flesh. And we should never, ever stop just looking at God, beholding Christ in our hearts, even when we don't even have the word in front of us. It's a necessity. We need to read our Bibles every day, meditate on what we read throughout the day. And David's example of personal devotion assumes memorization. He says, remember. How else is he supposed to properly behold and look at God when he doesn't have the word in front of him? Answer, that he has the word hidden in his heart that he might not sin against God. How does a man keep his way pure? By guarding it according to your word. How do we abide in Christ? By following his commandments. And how do we follow his commandments? By reading his word and meditating on it. We need to look at and behold God in our hearts by remembering and meditating on his word and memorizing it night and day all the time. And last point, point five, we need to praise and bless God and sing for joy. That is the natural overflow of the heart that has been meditating on God. Pastor Zach talked about this just a couple weeks ago in the bliss of being born again. We are a people of worship. In Psalm 103, bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me, bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits. Notice that these last two points, four and five, are kind of connected. They're deeply intertwined. Forgetting not all, his benef- all of his benefits. Beholding God. Seeing who he is. And in verse three here, David says, Because your steadfast love is better than life, my lips will praise you. So I will bless you as long as I live. In your name I will lift up my hands. Verse five, my soul is satisfied. And what happens? My mouth will praise you with joyful lips. When does that happen? When I remember you upon my bed and meditate on you in the watches of the night. Verse 7, you have been my help in the shadow of your wings. I will what? I will sing for joy. David meditates. He remembers. He sees. He beholds. He understands all the power, glory, and steadfast love. And then immediately it overflows in praise and worship And he enjoys God even more. He has joy in his heart. He is satisfied with God even more. He is filled with joy and gladness. Just like when Isaiah sees God in his throne room in Isaiah 6, and the angels who are always constantly in his glory are saying what over and over again? Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The earth is full of his glory. So let's go over them again. We seek God in our hearts through prayer. We pray our devotion to him each morning. That's number two. We fast to better focus on and understand how he satisfies us. We look and behold by meditating, remembering, and memorizing scripture. And we are deeply satisfied in him by doing all these things. Those first four points, we are deeply satisfied in him by doing any one of those four things. And then finally, In point five, we sing praises to him and we enjoy him more fully and we are satisfied by him more deeply for our praise to him. Our worship is the consummation of our satisfaction and joy in him. So let's start this tonight in prayer. And I hope you pray and you continue to do all these things this week and for the rest of your lives. And if you want to come up to me later and be like, hey, what was point four again? I'll I'll let you know.